Good evening. Please don't be alarmed. It's not going to be a political sermon. Um, Jesus did tell us, though, to watch and to pray. And thank you, Ellie, for your insightful prayers this evening. Sufficient to say, the world looked on watching nervously this week when Donald Trump was inaugurated as the 45th president of the United States. Uh, And that inauguration followed an election campaign that was, to say the least, filled with some controversy. But some of you might remember back in the year 2000 when there was controversy around that election campaign in the United States and Al Gore lost the presidency to George W. Bush. How many of you remember that? Uh, A few. There's a few more who should. (laughs) You're excused in the front rows, but not behind. Following uh, the, the failure to be elected as president, Al Gore turned his energies to environmental issues. And in 2006, he produced a film, and that film was entitled An Inconvenient Truth. And that particular inconvenient truth was one that not many people really wanted to hear that really significant and far-reaching changes had to be made at individual level, at institutional level, at national level, and at global level if we're going to avoid catastrophic consequences for the future of our planet and the future of human civilization. And while 16, 17 years further on, some of the details of that film have been revisited and reviewed in the light of scientific research. I think the basic premise remains the same. But, you know, the truth, the real truth, is often inconvenient. It's often easier to be economical with the truth than to tell the whole story, or so we think. I think one of the problems with social media is that we often see other people celebrating, celebrating their successes, their happy families, their beautiful children, their wonderful holidays with smiling selfies in fun-filled lives. But that is not the total daily lived reality for most of us. In reality, life can be difficult. Life can be painful. Sometimes we mess things up. (laughs) And if we're not careful, our economy with the truth can tip over into what is a lie, actually, a fabrication of the real truth so that we can portray ourselves in a slightly better light. Sometimes it's easier not to believe the real truth about ourselves or about others because that truth is too difficult, it's too painful. And if we face up to it, it needs, it demands some really difficult decisions. And the Bible, this book, is full of inconvenient truths. Most of them are about the nature of men and women, people like you and me, our attitudes and our behaviour. The prophet Nathan went to King David and told him a very inconvenient truth. He confronted him about the things, the very thing he had tried to keep a secret, that he, David, had orchestrated the murder 
of a man called Uriah, the Hittite. And it was all to cover up the fact that David had slept with Uriah's wife and he was carrying his child. But, you know, it was that confrontation with the truth that brought David to his knees, brought him to his knees before God and led him later on to write Psalm 51. Create a clean heart in me, O God, and renew a faithful spirit in me. And, you know, God uses the inconvenient truths to shine a light upon our wrong actions, our wrong reactions, our wrong attitudes. And if we will just embrace that truth and face up to it and let God into our lives and clean up our mess, he can do something. I noticed Ellie prayed about mess. And we do all have mess in our lives. Some of it's of our own making. Some of it we just find ourselves in. But we need God to be with us in our mess, to help us in our mess. You know, we often talk about the Holy Spirit, don't we? We talk about the gifts of the Spirit. But, you know, it's the fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's that love, that joy, that peace, that forbearance, that forgiveness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It's those things that come if we really allow God to change us deep inside. That then is the real evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. But for that fruit to grow in us, we sometimes have to acknowledge some rather inconvenient truths about ourselves. You know, when people challenge us or comment about our actions or things we've done or things we've said, it's so easy, isn't it, to react, to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves. But, you know, if we do that, what happens is our growth as Christian people is stunted. And the fruit in our lives can start to shrivel up and become bitter and not sweet. So if we're really going to grow as Christians, we've got to allow God to shine that truth that light of truth into us, to change us deep inside so that we can be a better testimony to the life of Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, wherever he spoke, and the words he still speaks to us today, they present a truth that's inconvenient, uncomfortable, unsettling, a truth that challenges our traditions, our assumptions, our conventions, our ambitions, our sense of entitlement, our independence our determination to do it my way. This portion that Maxine read, rather beautifully, I thought, from Luke, is episode two of a sermon that John started last week. And in the previous chapters, we read in Luke's account of a whole range of events. It started with Jesus beginning to call his disciples, first a fisherman and then a tax collector, and, but this calling of men around him was interspersed with accounts of casting out demons, cleansing a leper, and healing a paralyzed man. And then again tonight, in, like, in tonight's sermon, Luke seems to jump from one incident to another. There's the challenge that the Pharisees bring to him about fasting. And then we have a parable thrown in about patching up jumpers and split wineskins. And then the disciples having a kind of a Sabbath day snack in somebody's cornfield. And then there's another healing in for good measure. And then, then we're back to Jesus choosing his 12 disciples, the 12 men 
who were going to be his closest companions for the rest of his days on earth. Now, for somebody who likes a narrative to flow in an orderly fashion, it all seemed to me to be a bit messy, a bit all over the place. I always started wondering if Luke hadn't reviewed his first draft and was reordering his paragraphs a bit. But then I think he was actually doing it deliberately because he was trying to communicate something. And let's face it, life is not ordered, it's messy. The events of our lives don't flow in a logical sequence. We face ups and downs, joys, sorrows, hopes, despair, successes and pretty abject failures, mountaintops and valleys. Is the faith that we've got a faith that enables us to find Jesus in the valley as well as on the mountaintop, in the sorrow as well as in the joy? in despair as well as in hope, in failure as well as in success. It seems to me that in this narrative section in Luke's Gospel, Luke's allowing two threads to unravel side by side. And the first thread is the growth of Jesus' ministry, the manifestation of supernatural power. It brings healing, it brings deliverance, it brings the drawing together of this small band of men who are going to be the apostles of the future church. It's, it's light, it's life, it's energy, it's excitement, it's pace. And there's a real sense of expectation in that thread. And then the second thread seems to be a dark one. It's the emergence of opposition, insidious questioning, whispering in secret places, the beginning of an undermining of Jesus. It's going to fester and fester and fester until it manifests itself in a death charge against him when the murder of Jesus is going to take place, the murder of the Son of God. Well, we pick up this account almost immediately after uh, Levi, alias Matthew, has responded to Jesus' call, um, which John spoke about last week, and he threw a rather extravagant party. I, mean, I imagine this room full of tax collectors. You know, they're the fat cats. They're there, they're eating, they're drinking. They're a whole bunch of self-made people who lived a lavish lifestyle. Remind you of anybody? Living a lavish lifestyle on for what for them was probably the proceeds of extortion. And who knows what money laundering had gone on, what double dealing, what backhanders had paid for that party. And Jesus probably knew that, you know, but he did not disdain to go because he knew that however that party was paid for, whatever the background of Matthew's life, that banquet was being held in his honour at the beginning of a life being turned around and changed and transformed. And he honoured Levi, or Matthew, by being there. But in doing that, in honouring that man, that man who was leaving his opulent lifestyle to launch out into the unknown with Jesus, oh boy, was he laying himself open to some criticism from his opponents. Enter! The religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who held power amongst the Jewish people. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And Jesus began his answer, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees wouldn't let it go. And they challenged Jesus and his disciples about eating and drinking instead of fasting and praying. Now, in some other contexts, I'm quite sure, well, we know that Jesus commanded his disciples, his followers, to fast and to pray. But in this context, the battle lines were drawn and he was having none of it. And he spoke out the very inconvenient truth that you can't patch up an old garment and expect it to be new. You can't put new wine into an old wineskin and expect it to mature and taste like the good, mature wine that it's destined to be. That doesn't work because old wineskins are rigid. There's no place in them for the wine to expand as it matures, as it ages, and then the skin splits. And it's spilt and the whole lot is useless. And you have to start again. You have to put new wine into a new wineskin. A wineskin that will be pliable and expandable. And then the wine and the wineskin grow and mature together. And Jesus was saying, you can't put a patch of religion on and expect it to change your life from inside. Now, a patch of religion might bring some changes. It might change the company you keep. It might change some of your beliefs and ideas, your values. It might change how you spend your time and your money. But when the chips are down, it doesn't change your self-centred, self-seeking, self-justifying nature or mine. It doesn't take away our fear. It doesn't take away our tendency to despair. It doesn't heal our pain. It just airbrushes over it. You can't really receive the wine of the Holy Spirit authentically without a very key ingredient that Jesus had just spoken about earlier. That old-fashioned word, repentance. You can have a taster. You can have a free trial. You can sense the presence of the Holy Spirit. You might receive a picture or a word. But to know that real indwelling of the Holy Spirit, changing you or me from within, changing attitudes, there's got to be repentance, a new beginning. We have to start over. Even the Old Testament prophets got that. Ezekiel wrote in chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and then put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Ever felt you've got a heart that's stony? Long to have the heart of God in you? The Pharisees had got a religious system. They thought they had all the answers and they imposed its rigid framework on everybody else. And Jesus wasn't going to be contained in that. He wasn't going to be contained in the rigid old wineskins of their traditions. One of those traditions was the prohibition of work on the Sabbath. Not a bad idea to have a day of rest. We suffer when we don't. But that work included harvesting. And harvesting even included rubbing some uh, some grains of corn in your hands like that. 
Those weren't, those weren't God's laws. Those were the add-ons. They were made by men, and they were made by men who abused their position of power. The power that they had as religious leaders. The power that they then had over others. And time and time again, Jesus was going to expose that inconvenient truth to the Pharisees about their lack of real faith and godliness. Religion could be Judaism, could be Methodism, could be Pentecostalism, could be Catholicism, could be Anglicanism, it could be Evangelicalism, it could be any ism, really. It can be really, really rigid without the presence of the Holy Spirit, without new garments and new wineskins. By healing that man's hand on the Sabbath in the synagogue, Jesus, I think, was very deliberately and very intentionally bringing himself further into confrontation with those religious leaders. He discerned their hearts, hadn't he? He discerned the thoughts and he deliberately went about flouting their laws and exposing what was under that veil of religious observance. And we read, Maxine read, they were furious. Other versions translate that more powerfully. It says, they say they were filled with rage. A rage so all-consuming that they began to plot Jesus' murder. Greater violation than all those holy laws of theirs. And there might be times in our lives when you or I are called, are challenged to speak an inconvenient and uncomfortable piece of truth to a person or to persons who hold power and are misusing it. Might be somebody in our family, might be somebody at work, it might be somebody in our community, it could even be somebody in our churches or a public figure. What do we do then? Do we bottle it? Go for a quiet life? Because Christians are supposed to be nice, aren't they? Not confrontational. Or do we speak, even if we know that speaking the truth will have consequences? Maybe for us, and there will be a cost. Ellie brought this out in her prayers when she was praying for the persecuted church. Who will speak the truth of the gospel, whatever the cost. But here we are, suddenly we're in a critical point in the ministry and life of Jesus. And Luke makes it quite clear that although uh, Jesus had already called lots of people to follow him, who were his learners or his disciples, it was a big group. And he hadn't yet identified those who would continue his ministry after his death. So how is he going to hone it down and reduce that? big following to just 12. Well, he didn't rely on his knowledge and experience of them. He didn't use a Myers-Briggs profile. He didn't analyse their characters and personalities. Luke tells us he went out alone and spent a whole night in prayer. Many of us like to work in teams with people who, though they might bring different skills, are like-minded. It just makes life so much easier, doesn't it, when people can agree. It's just so hard when people don't. 
But the inconvenient truth was that a group of agreeable, like-minded people were not going to change the world after Jesus had gone. So Jesus gathered a rather eclectic mix around him. People, men who would have to learn, and there were women too beyond that immediate circle of the twelve. But he gathered around him those who would learn to live and work together. And it wasn't always going to be easy, that bit, despite their deep differences. There's some of those disciples we don't know much about, but we know there were two sets of brothers. Three of them were involved in the fishing business and probably neither wealthy nor highly educated. We'd got two with polar opposing political views. We'd got Matthew, who was the Roman-friendly tax collector. And then we'd got Simon, the Roman-hating zealot. I wonder how they got on at the first meal they had together. And then there was Thomas. And then there was Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to be turned and who would betray Jesus to death. So on the face, it wasn't a very promising team, was it? But it was a team that Jesus chose through prevailing prayer. Individuals who were teachable, who learned humility, who let themselves be broken, who faced up to themselves and their weaknesses. So that when the day came, they themselves gave themselves to prayer and fasting so that they were ready for the new wine of the Holy Spirit, ready themselves to lay down their lives for a gospel a gospel of Jesus, so that they would transform lives of others and the church could be born. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, one night alone in prayer makes us new people, change from poverty of soul to spiritual wealth, from trembling to triumphing. That is a really inconvenient truth. For those of us who find prayer is very hard work and we can find 100 other things to do in its place. We've just had a 24-hour focus on prayer, haven't we? One in which we've been encouraged to seek God's mind for our church. We've been asked to reflect upon the verse for the year that Jesus said, love The Lord your God, with all your passion and prayer and intelligence, this is the most important, the first on any list. We've been asked to consider what that means for us, for this church. We've been asked to consider our many activities and ministries and dreadful thought. We've been asked to consider which should be laid down for a while at least. We've been asked to consider what we would long for for this church to look like in five years' time. And the things that God has spoken to different ones of us have yet to be revealed. But whatever he has said, the truth remains that his purpose, God's purpose, here, here in Aldridge Parish Church, won't be revealed here. And we won't bring forth good fruit if we just try to do a patch-up if we just try to put a new patch on an old garment, if we try to constrain the new things that God wants to do within an old wineskin. You know, to stop and listen to the still, small voice is actually so much harder than perpetuating all our activities. All the things we do that affirm us 
our sense of who we are as servants of Jesus. But as individuals, whatever our age, young or old, and as a church, I believe God is telling us it's time. It's time to humble ourselves before him. It's time to put aside the things that have become our traditions, the way we do things here. Even the things we've done really well and enter a season where we're prayerful, where we're open to be changed deep within. Lots and lots of things to ponder and I think we need to ponder them over the coming days and weeks and make ourselves available to God both as individuals in our small groups, in our friendship groups and in our big gatherings to really hear what God wants to say because uh, as um, another great old preacher said, the good is often the enemy of the best and we can do good things for God but sometimes we can be so busy doing good things for God, that we can miss the point, that he wants to come and do something actually transformational. And if you've never known what it is to really have God come and transform you from deep within, if what you have is just a patch, a religious patch that you've put on, then let God come and do something new, something different, something transformational for you.